I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be discussing George Orwell's 1984. We are going to be discussing in particular part two, chapters one through eight. Part two is pretty long, but the ninth and tenth chapters uh, are like almost as long as the first eight chapters. Uh, so we'll dig into to one through eight today and then nine and ten next week. <clears throat> um, Tim, how's wedding planning going? I think it was, I feel like every now and then we just need to do a quick check-in. How's your heart? How's my heart? <laughs> my heart's good. How's your budget? <clears throat> my, my budget's another matter. Yeah, two different things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those are two different things. We think we've found a rehearsal dinner spot, we think. Um, what Progress. else? We are hoping to – oh, we think we've made decisions about stationary. And what else have we done okay. this week? All the de- all the little details. All the little details. I like that you're like, we think. We think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not quite sure. We think so. We're getting there. As I, I, I like to use a phrase, and that phrase is one step at a time. It's kind of novel. Is that – is that also how you picked your NCAA bracket? Did you make that up? I just made that up. Because if you think about it, it really works. Like, don't get too far ahead of yourself. Just take right. one step ahead like of one step at a time. Like, if you think of life as, like, a path, and then you just yeah. You yeah. can't jump forward. You have to go no. one step at a time. Right, exactly. I, I, that, this is a good I think it has a future. I, I think this might catch on. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you, Heidi. The thing about it, it, though, is that like you've ever been on a path with children, they never take anything one step at a time. That's true. It's and, always and two kids steps are at idiots. a time. What if we said so. one – what about one bound at a time? Okay. That would be, for me, moving ahead too quickly. <laughs> so maybe a variation. Fair. Fair. I don't know. I'm just workshopping this is maybe <laughs> one – one Small foot step for before man. the other, one foot in front of the other, something like that. Again, I'm yeah, just I think, riffing you know, I think if we spend the next few weeks really working on this, yeah. we'll find one that people will want to use for a long for time. For a long time, yeah. They might stick, yeah. Heidi, what about you? What's happening in your world? You're sitting in sitting a car, in a right car. Now, which is not your usual no, perch. I, ha- I live in a house, and so mm. I usually <laughs> record from there. You're usually recording in a house. But I am at a conference, the St. Cosmos Orthodox Education, Christian Education Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. It's actually in Gold Canyon, Arizona. And so I am missing a talk to talk to you jokers. And I'm really excited to do that, actually. So I can't wait to talk about 1984. Yeah, yeah she seems excited. To, mm-hmm. She seems excited. to hear it in her I voice. Am. I'm always excited. It's been um, a I long won't ask time this question. since a book has stirred up this much controversy amongst controversy. us, amongst the three of us. I want you to know, <laughs> I know. I love you people. You're some of my favorite humans. <laughs> despite our despite our erroneous opinion. <laughs> Tim, I want to ask Heidi this for the sake of time. Did, did you, who did you pick uh, in your bracket, your NCAA bracket? I got to tell you something, David. I didn't fill out a NCAA bracket. How's your heart? Your heart is distracted. <laughs> one heart step is at distracted. a time. Was that it? Was that mm-hmm. the saying that you came up with? The idiom? Is it one? This is going to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> so, who did you of pick, brackets, I, you know, it's funny because I'm now not 100% sure. Oh. It was, I think I picked a Gonzaga or Arizona. Uh-huh. I think they're both pretty good. I don't know. Like, although no team from the West Coast has won it 
in 25 years. Really? So statistically, it, yeah, seems odd. Um, or maybe it's like one out of the last 25 years or something mm. like that. But speaking of brackets, over at Close Reads HQ, we published uh, our our literary bracket for the year, and uh, it's the the sweet homes of the best homes. And so it's it's literary literary houses. And I want to talk about this real quick before we dive into 1984. By the time people will have listened to this, round one will be over. We'll be on to round two. So I want to go over the eight or so matchups that are here in round two, just real quick. And I want to get y'all's feedback on this. Let's see how, see how much you can impact uh, the, the bracket. Now, on the one hand, it's possible that people might be like, that was just a wonderful point by Heidi. But then on the other hand, people might say, that was Tim talking, and so I shall vote against him. So mm-hmm. maybe you might you might be impacting this bracket in any number of ways. Vice versa is possible. It's possible. So in in one side we've got um, where you're going to have Green Gables from Anne of Green Gables up against the Little House in the Big Woods from the Little House in the Big Woods. Heidi, what's your take on this matchup? Is it just easily in the Green Gables for you? I so somebody made a comment on one of the threads this week that said. I think I'm quoting this pretty much exactly. The comment was, as I was voting, I wondered if David had stacked this entire bracket to make you angry. Um, so, or to annoy you, I think, was the... And I thought, no, but... This particular no, person just me, or you, Heidi? Me, she said. Yeah. So I said, no, like, I, it's not me. But he does do it intentionally <laughs> yeah. so that... It creates not conflict, but it forces us to pick a side, which always creates conflict, right? So I'm not looking for conflict. I'm looking for right, conversation, Heidi. Um, well, you know, we have side to note the 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 bracket that corner of the bracket is just it's all children's books. If you're paying attention, you'll notice themes uh, in these things. Is, so that mm-hmm. I, I think you're yes. I think that I think Little House. Oh, am I breaking up? Go to Tim. Yeah. Let me try to figure it out. Cut to Tim. Okay. So, so okay, Tim, Green Gables or Little House in the Big Woods? I've never Little read. House in the Big Woods defeated the Little House in the Prairie. I've never read Little House in the Big Woods. I abstain. Hold on. In other words, I abstain. Okay. Well, that's a terrible way to approach this, but why don't you just vote for Green Gables? <laughs> well, then I vote for Green Gables. I just want, I want okay. listeners to know that this is an option of uh, a victory of ignorance. I just, I'm voting for that side because I don't know the other side. And that's not the way that I like to vote. Then the, the next matchup is Misselthwaite Manor, which is the house from the Secret Garden, and up against the House at Pooh Corner. So do you have a do you have an opinion on this one, Tim? Or I think House at Pooh Corner. Books? House at Pooh Corner. I, I suspect that'll win, but I think people really love the Secret Garden. Heidi, are you are you you're you're muted still? It looks like she's figuring stuff out. Yeah. So um we'll just move on here. Okay, then we have the professor's house from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, which side note should not have lost to the treehouse in Swiss family Robinson, because here's the thing in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the kids didn't even like being in the house. They spent the whole time trying to escape the house. Isn't that a reason so, to vote against just it? Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, it is. That's why it shouldn't have won in the first round. Oh, who, which, who did it beat in the first round? This treehouse from Swiss oh, family. Robinson. No doubt. The treehouse from Swiss family Robinson should have won. Yeah, the house, I the mean, house that the me, wardrobe is in, it's not even really, it like hardly even shows up. Yeah, and they, I mean, they literally, the kids don't want to be there. Yeah. 
Oh man, the treehouse in Swiss so, Family okay. Robinson is just wonderful. Uh, yeah, I agree. Graham and I were flabbergasted and slightly perturbed. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the professor's house is up against Bag End. I assume that's just Bag End for it's you. It's got to right? be Bag End. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. pretty easy. This is good because we're buying time while Heidi figures out her internet problem. Okay. Then we've got the burrow from Harry Potter up against Tom Bombadil's house. I've never read Harry Potter. Have you seen the movies? No. Haven't seen five minutes of any of the movies. So Tom Bombadil's house. <laughs> by ignorance. Again, by ignorance. Yeah. Tom Bombadil's house. Okay. So this one's going to be tough for you too. Okay. Hogwarts <laughs> up against mm. Pemberley from Pride and Prejudice. Mm. The thing is, you can still go by the legend. You don't have to. You don't have to have read a book to, like these houses are legendary in most cases. Yeah, th- I mean, at least in the case of Hogwarts, people use those as kind of like metaphors for all sorts of things. So I think they should be right. earning some votes from me, just by public repute. Repute. Re- Repute, reputation, repute, repute, reputation. Uh, so, okay, here's another one. Brideshead Castle from Brideshead Revisited up against Rivendell from the, from the Lord of the Rings books. Oh, ooh. oh, that's really, really tough. I think Rivendell. What do you think? Fair, fair I can see. Um, Rivendell is magical, and so, and this place of respite, and, and uh, you know how I love the Lord of the Rings, too. So that's kind of like, that's kind of tough. To vote against, but Bradshead is also kind of a, it's almost like a character in those books as well. So, yeah, that one is probably the toughest matchup for me of the yeah, whole round. That's a really tough matchup. What I love. Okay, here's one uh, Northanger Abbey from the book Northanger Abbey and 221B Baker Street, aka Sherlock Holmes's home. <laughs> Oof. I don't know. I think Baker Street. I think so too. Heidi, are you back? I'm back. Sorry about that, guys. Um, What's your take on 221B Baker Street versus Northern Abbey? So I think Baker Street, for the same reason, I'm looking for, like, I think that absolutely Toad Hall should have beat House at Pooh Corner by a mile because Toad Hall's a character in the story. It's the hint, it's the linchpin of the whole story. And the House at Pooh Corner is not. So I think in Baker Street, it's so iconic that it has to win over Northanger Abbey because the, the focus of Northanger Abbey is less on the place and more on the person. It really is more on the heroine. Um, this is why Tim and I were just arguing that the treehouse from Swiss Family Robinson should, should have defeated should have won. the professor. The kids didn't even want to be in the house. And, like the whole point was to escape the house. Okay. Lastly, we have Tara from Gone with the Wind versus Gatsby's Mansion. Where do you stand on that one, Heidi? Tara by a, by a long shot, like because really by a long shot. Gatsby's mansion could be any mansion. Tara can only be Tara. Mm. Well, the problem for me is Tara shouldn't have beaten Hill House from the the, uh, in the first round from the haunting of Hill House. I think that's I I think that's a I I think I agree with you because I did vote for Hill House. No, I didn't vote for Hill House. I actually voted for Tara because. Of the same reason, like Tara is, it 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 represents the whole setting of the whole story. Like Tara represents the South, and the battle over Tara is the same as the battle over the South, which is over the hearts and minds of America. And so it's so central to the story that it 
it beats Hill House, even though Hill House is more vivid as a house. But I thought that was a good matchup and a fair matchup. Makes you decide based on Although, real but Terra won like it was the like one of it was like the fifth closest. It it won in a landslide. Mm-hmm. But I didn't the, pick it just because I read biggest, the book. Yeah, I picked the biggest it disparity of though. Right, right. The biggest disparity of all was Bag End versus Odysseus. It's because not enough people which have read I the was Odyssey. Surprised by. Yeah. And the second biggest disparity is Misselthwaite Manor versus Moonacre Manor. Like people really love the Secret Garden, turns out. Or haven't read the um, other one, which is fine. Like that's that's not yeah, bad. Yeah. But most people have read the Secret Garden and and have True. Especially women, like we have this image of ourselves wandering the halls and listening to the shrieking cries in the background and that fair and fair. building a garden and yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Because we're not, we're, there'll be another, I don't know if we'll get another chance to talk about this before we, uh, before it's over. What do you think the final four should be, Heidi? Like it, or who do you think the final two will will be? Can you remind or me you since I we'll missed? Uh, remind me who's. What's so we'll in have, it? we'll have. You can have Green Gables, uh, Mistlethwaite Manor, to- House of Toad Hall, Bag End is an option. The Professor's House, the Burrow, Tom Bombadil's House. You could have Two Twenty One B Baker. You could have Northern Abbey, Terra, um, Brideshead, Rivendell, Pemberley, or Hogwarts. Okay, um, it will be between Bag End and Green Gables. That's my prediction. Well, will they go to? They'll go up against each other. They would be in the final four. In the final four, yeah. Um, I think it'll be Bag End. But, Tim, what do you think? Bag End, definitely. I think it's going to be Bag End. I think. Do you think that's David? probably safe? The only thing to me is like, does Rivendell or yeah. Hogwarts or something, yeah, jump up and. All of those are solid, anyway. but some good ones got eliminated too early. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about this because it's always one of the things people get so the most excited about. So if you haven't had a chance to vote or you, if you know, you haven't voted yet in round two, be sure to head over to closereads.substack.com uh, or check your email and we'll have uh, the link there where you can vote. Um, okay. Let's dive into 1984. Um, We'll have two more episodes on this before we get to the Q&A. This is the, in this section, we get Winston and his romance, basically. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about here is, I don't, can't think of a, a better word for this than like toxic. <laughs> and I wasn't good. I don't necessarily mean like there's a toxic relationship here, although perhaps you could say that. But one of the things that's, that troubles a lot of people about this book Tim, I don't know if you feel this way about it, is that Winston, generally speaking, although he stands in opposition, even if not publicly yet, to the totalitarian regime under which they're living, he also seems to espouse and have some pretty toxic opinions of his own. Um, do you, how do you respond to that? Like our protagonist who stands against this evil regime is, is also like, he has these bad opinions, right? Like some things like that are downright evil. And he has these, these dreams that are awful. And these, you know, how, how do you respond to that as far as him be like being our hero? And are we thinking about, um, the fact that he considered pushing his wife off the cliff? Are we thinking about things like that, David, or are you thinking about something else? Yeah, there's that. There's the thing about the, 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 he, the he says things like he wants to the rape. The casual sex, yeah. the fantasies, the, the, 
the acquiescence yeah. to the moral issues in the conversation with O'Brien. Yeah, there's just yeah, where he's just like, would you throw poison in the kid's face? You know, how how do you respond to all that? Because it 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 does lend a level of like complexity to this character where you can't just. You're on the surface. You're supposed to be like, okay, this guy stands in def- up against this regime. We root for him, but he's also kind of like a difficult guy. Do you, or do you not feel that? Tim's thinking. I, mean, I I think that the the book is exploring the toll that it takes on individuals to live in a poisonous society like mm. society in 1984. If mm. our main characters, and I don't think Julia's particularly estimable either. She's, no, no. she's, you know, pretty tough character. I think if these are like really, um, virtuous, um, people with integrity and, you know, clear moral compasses, then that begs the question, okay, so is this society really so deleterious or mm-hmm. maybe not, you know, mm-hmm. if it produced people yeah. like this, maybe it's not so bad. So I think you have to have really kind of ethically dubious characters to kind of show the effects of a totalitarian system upon mm-hmm. individuals. So yeah, I like think the, it's I think it's almost a mandate that Winston is of dubious moral character. Heidi, for you, does that impact your sense of sympathy for him? Like the sort of sympathy that Orwell is asking of us, given that he's making this art, the character through which we're seeing the world and trying to pursue some sort of aim. Man, I'm so glad we're talking about this because I think this is the conversation of the book, not whether or not to resist a regime. That's I that's. That to me seems like a given. Like books don't necessarily. Yeah, Orwell seems yeah, to assume like that. Like books don't necessarily need to be written about that, right? Like that's that that's that's. We have so, a tale of right. two cities. Like that's so down the list in the 20th century, um, and and in our day certainly. Uh, the question is how and why, mm. right? And what Orwell gives us in 1984 is exactly what Tim said. He gives us a person uh, f- firmly entrenched within such a corrupt moral system that he, without, even while hating it, has also absorbed a total lack of moral ethics. Where would he get them, mm. right? Where would he get, that seems to be the, the question we're exploring. And is resistance like what what makes resistance morally good is it just resistance mm. like is it is that mm-hmm. it right and that's yeah does necessity make it right moral? and so to say i would throw sulfuric acid in a child's face forces us to ask the question what's the point of resistance if we're just going to be wicked about it and that, I think, is mm. the question of 1984. So we don't get a moral high horse here with Winston and Julia. And, and that, in a sense, takes the rug out from under us, which I think is what Orwell is trying to do. So I think he's succeeding. Do you agree with the way she puts that, Tim? Yeah. I, there's, I, I want to be careful for myself about... Um, presuming that one can have a sort of the sort of moral stance that one would want to have 
in a system like this. And an example I'll give you, um, I have several friends who lived in Argentina or still live in Argentina, and they talk about how prevalent bribing is in certain parts of that country. So that if you wanted to bring in, let's say, um, a water purifier to an orphanage, mm-hmm. um, to get the water purifier across the border, you have to bribe government officials. It's like not a question of if. If you want the water purifier, there must be bribes. Now, I am against bribes. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to participate in any sort of bribing system. I think to, to participate in any meaningful way in that aspect of that society, I have to pay a bribe. I just have to. And I, there's certain things about Winston's characters that I would kind of put in that category. Like, um, there's a certain aspect of living in that society, which you have to traffic in its deceit. You just have to. And I think I'm, I'm reluctant to say, yeah, you can maintain like a really robust moral character. Um, and also like exist in that society. I just, I don't, I think Anybody in that society would, for the sake of their own subsistence, have to make decisions that they would not like to make if they lived in a society like ours. And now like people might say, hey, living in the United States, there are plenty of things that we have to do. We have to kind of like lie in, you know, deceit and participate in kind of like a hyper-capitalistic system or something like that. I can hear somebody saying um, – like every society, why are you picking on Argentine society? Every society demands some sort of like bending of, um, you know, like a, a perfectly robust moral stance. And that may be true. Um, and I guess that would kind of contribute to my point that, yeah, every society kind of demands something of us that we don't necessarily, it would not be our ideal. Okay. So then the, go ahead, Heidi, were you going to say something? Okay, so we had a bit of a we had a bit of a technical uh, error. We're having some connect- connectivity issues, so we we've called Heidi on her phone. So we're gonna we're gonna pick it up from here. So her audio is gonna be slightly different. So Heidi, welcome back. Thanks, guys. I'm really sorry about that. Thanks for being patient with me. Um, well, we, it wouldn't be the same without you. So uh, phone audio <laughs> is better than no audio. So wow, do you do you want to respond to what Tim was just saying there uh, before I kind of take it the next? Yeah. Like have I just wanted. I agree with Tim. I think that I think the question of resistance is the is the moral question of the book. Um, there's no question. Like Big Brother is an evil regime. There is absolutely no question of that. It's not only wicked, but it is also uh, unbearable. And so, mm. Orwell makes that easy, right? That's not hard. So the question is how. Ought we to resist? How is it possible to resist? And is it possible for morally bankrupt people to do something, to, to have some kind of meaningful moral resistance to a wicked regime mm. if they've at some point bought in or acquiesced to it or even participated mm. in it, as both mm. of our main characters have? Um, right. And so I, I, I just I agree with Tim, and I think that it raises the question of then how much do we 
what kind of tactics can a morally bankrupt person use in order to accomplish something morally good, right? That to me is the question of this book. And that's a really interesting question. The question of resistance is pretty simple. Yes, we should resist. The question of how, especially how does a person who's actually been impacted so much, they have almost no moral compass left, can they still do something worthwhile? That's an interesting question. So then for you, Tim, this is for either for you, either of you, do, do you, um, do you find yourself then hunting for clues or hints or, um, I don't know, moments or signals or something? There is some kind of moral framework still embedded within our characters. Like, do you find yourself looking for moments of moral fortitude or moral light or whatever phrase you want to use, given that their overarching mission is good, but they don't know how to go about that. Like, how do you, how do you approach these characters then? Tim, how do you, how do you think about these people? Well, I, I I really respect Winston. And the reason I respect him is think that I think his primary drive is a drive toward the truth. I think there's an epistemic honesty that he has, or kind of like a Mm. relentless inquisitiveness Mm. that makes him not be able to just kind of keep his mouth and his mind shut. I mean, he has to keep kind of pursuing these questions. They nag at him. And I think even when he's with Julia and he kind of has this they kind of create this kind of oasis between the two of them and they were able to speak freely and they kind of acknowledge the evils of big brother. Um, I, there's something kind of outward looking that Winston has that Julia doesn't have. Julia has kind of internalized. Her only hope is internal and private. You know, she like, mm-hmm. she has no daydreams about overthrowing Big Brother about, you know, like rallying against Big Brother. Winston is kind of like, man, then Big Brother is just going to continue to dominate everybody and everything. And I think Winston is not content with that. And I take that as as a morally estimable stance. I, I really respect that aspect of Winston. And I think that it's the primary thing we're meant to respect about him. And I think the other kind of, some of the opinions that he has, some of the actions that he um, performs, they don't trouble me as much. It, what would really trouble me, and I think what would trouble us most about this book, is if he just closed his eyes, if there was nobody willing to say, this is wrong. This is really screwed up. I mean, you wouldn't really have a book. You would just have the functionings of this kind of massive dark machinery and you wouldn't have any sort of conflict internal or external. But I think we're meant to see the primary virtue of Winston as being that kind of intellectual honesty, that drive to understand. Go ahead, Heidi. So I agree with that. I think that's true, but I give a little, maybe a little more credit to Julia than you do in this way. It is Julia that draws the only moral line in this section of reading. When she says, when he says, you are, when O'Brien says, you are prepared the two of you to separate and never see one another again. No, broke in Julia. It is her capacity to have a 
meaningful connection with another human being that A, humanizes Winston, and B, draws the only moral line so far in this novel. And I think that's a, I think it's degraded, yes, but so is Winston. And I think what we have is a feminine character who's doing what women do for men, which is exactly what Kitty does for Levin, which is remind him you're more than a set of ideas and beliefs. You're a person with a real human connection to me, first of all. And that is a, um, a moral action on her part. Again, it's degraded, it's distorted, but it's part of her femininity to say, I will do anything except betray you. And that is a human and a moral action. Kitty and Levin being from Anna Karenina, for those who who, who right. don't know or forgot that. Right, sorry. See, okay. I, I, I totally get that, and I think that's a great point. I think the great monstrosity of the book is Big Brother, and I think it's the thing that um, I think if – I don't know how to say this. I think all sorts of those kind of relationships, like the one between Winston and Julia, I think those are like good. Those are like these these are like these oases that like these kind of flights from the oppression. And and I and that's a good. You're right. I agree. Julia is is like that's something to applaud and something so good. Big Brother. Um, nothing is done to kind of topple Big Brother or to even threaten Big Brother from that relationship aside from they kind of like acknowledge to each other that big brother is just as horrible as they privately think that he is. So I, I think there's something, I think what I want in a hero, and I know how the book ends, but what I want in a, in a hero is someone who is willing to, it, it must be public for me. The opposition must be public and not merely private. Or the monster just the monster continues. There's no threat to the monster whatsoever. But isn't that one of the points that Winston brings up? Like it is love for a person that wakes him up and makes his public act have any kind of source or meaning that's grounded in his humanity. And he has that in that long section about um, his mother when he's talking about his mom. And he says like the worst thing that big brother does is to take away any kind of individual identity. Mm -hmm. And to me, the resistance seems just as monstrous as the regime at this point. And so the only thing making him human is Julia. Mm -hmm. And so you kind so, of, I don't disagree with you. I just think it's both. Like, I think you have to have meaningful relationship to make a public act, not just an equal amount of monstrosity. So the, the words are being used like, but a lot, or I don't disagree. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little unclear, honestly, in listening to the two of you talk. Do you disagree or do you agree on something here? We're talking no, as if we're disagreeing, we're... but I'm trying to figure out where no, the overlap no. is. No, I don't think I. I think that the question of whether Winston is has a greater 
heroic capacity in the novel is is um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're disagreeing, but I don't think he's any more heroic than Julia. I just think it's a very, very different kind of, or at least at this point, like there's obviously there's more of the story to come and that matters a lot. I just think that the the tension between the public and the private is part of the contemplation. And Tim, what I hear is you're emphasizing the public and, and I'm, I'm saying the public isn't possible without a grounding in the private. And that's what Julia is providing. So I'm not, yeah, I don't think we're disagreeing. I just think we're emphasizing two different habits of the same coin. I can get with that. I can get with what you just said. It's like the private supplies the goods and the nourishment that any sort of public statement must have. It's like the, any sort of public defiance. And I think this is part of what the book is emphasizing. Any sort of public defiance Mm -hmm. would come as a defense of the private goods of, um, human relationship and family. And and I think the example of Winston's kind of like revisiting his relationship with his mom is a great example. Like when he considered privately, like how hard she was trying, she was working so hard to provide for he and his sister. And there's a kind of sympathy that Winston realizes when he kind of like realizes the extreme duress that his mother was under because of Big Brother. And that kind of renews his fondness for his mother, gives him sympathy, and also kind of renews his sympathy for himself. I'm not the one who murdered her. You know, there, there was something external that kind of like drove her to this situation. And so those, those private relationships, those private goods, and the one that he has with Julia do seem to provide the kind of um, the fuel by which any sort of public declaration, any sort of public opposition, it's fuel to some sort of public opposition, which is what I, which is I, what I just kind of find myself leaning toward over and over. I want a public defiance. I recognize to some degree um, it's foolishness and the moment that it happens, Winston's life is over. You know, I recognize that. Which is what he keeps saying. Yeah, right. And I also think in some ways, it's kind of what the book, it's, a, it's, it's what a totalitarian, a totalitarian system, it's the only means of opposing and that form of opposition is immediately snuffed out. So... Do you, do you not then um, view Julia in the in the positive way that Heidi does? No, I do. I do. Okay. It's. Um, I think that Heidi. What I hear Heidi saying is, Julia is fighting for this relationship, and she's the one who stands up, and kind of yeah. declares it. And I'm and I, my only pushback on that is, yeah, she does that. Um, I just don't know that the great monster that this book is built around is in any way threatened by that, but it's like, but I also grant like that is a necessary, that relationship and her true affection for Winston supplies the kind of oxygen that gives his like lungs of rebellion strength. 
Heidi, this is kind of going to be a, a very huge question, but given all the things that we're talking about, it comes to mind for me. Like, what do you think this book is about? Hmm. Um, I think it is about, oh man, that is a really big question. I mean, what I have, I have two answers for that. One is probably what every novel in the whole world is about. So it might be cheating. And that is what it means to be human, what it means to be human under duress, which again, might be what every novel is about. (laughs) Um, But in in this particular context, it is, what does it mean to resist a wicked to to resist an external evil in a meaningful way. I think that's so if you, I think that's fair. He, and then, okay, so Tim, if you had to narrow it down, how would, what would you say is this book is about? And you have to give like one central way of describing it. I would say the cost of living under a totalitarian regime that, and I think this is going to become more prominent a little bit later in the book, has the power to. Um, totally consume and erase history. I think that aspect, like, like there are all these kind of like sub themes that keep coming up in the book, you know, like the effect on language, the effect on romantic relationships, familial relationships. But it seems to me like Winston is really preoccupied with the power of the state to eradicate not just human life, but to eradicate history, to basically make human life lived in a perpetual present Mm. with nothing that came before us, you know? So it it sounds almost like the things Heidi describing you view as sub themes and maybe vice versa. Well, I think that the, I think the historical question is actually, I would say that's a sub theme within the kind of broader, under the broader umbrella yeah, of okay. what okay. are the cost of the individuals living in a totalitarian regime? Yeah. So is that just another, is what she said about how, what it means to be human under duress, just another way of saying that? Like a particular type of duress. Yeah. A very particular type agreed. of duress. I think that's true. I think you're right. So yeah. then I guess what I'm kind of getting at here is like, uh, trying to differentiate, do, do we differentiate in terms of theme the idea of living under duress, what it means to live under duress or what it means to be human under a particular kind of duress with a book about resistance. Like are those two separate things? Is it being a book about resistance, like secondary to the fact that it's about living under duress or is, or is it like, that's why I wanted to know how you guys, where you guys place the duress part, because I do think that how you define those or prioritize those two elements, um, if they're different, has a lot to, to do with how we consider the moral questions and quandaries that come up within the book. If it's a book about resistance, then the question, those, those, the, the things that seem problematic morally, you can respond to them differently than if it's a book about what it means to be human, because, because then those moral questions are impacting the human soul in a, in a particular way. So it, it's, that's just kind of what got me thinking about it as you're, as you're talking here. So, so like, go ahead, Tim. You're asking David, if, if the book is primarily um, concerned with resistance, is that is that what you're asking? Well, I'm asking with what you guys are saying when you talk about the idea of what it means to be human un, under duress and uh, under a particular kind of duress. I was trying to sort of synthesize the two things, the two ways that you're putting that into one 
statement. It, where does the resistance part of it fall under that? Is that a, is it like, is, is the resistance a sub theme to that? Or is that a sub theme to the resistance? Like what is a greater, what is of greater importance? I think, case? I think resistance is a sub theme. I mean, it, it, and I think it's a sub thing because of the extreme power of the system that they're living in. That like, like Winston doesn't even really, the, the best idea for resistance that, that Winston can come up with is it's about the proles. We have to kind of like have a big enough, a, a group of people who could kind of like rise and say no more because individually speaking, I think he knows I can't do anything as an individual. I can't mm -hmm. like bring down this system. I can't even like cause a ripple in this system, but the proles could cause more than a ripple. Mm. And so I think, I, I don't know, for me, that's a secondary kind of theme, the theme of resistance. I think it's, it's coming up all the time. Like what would it mean to get out of this system? What would it mean to bring it down? What would it mean to try to, you know, I don't know, create just for myself some other living situation? I think that's always kind of present. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a subcategory compared to the things that Heidi and I, it sounds like agree yeah. about a little bit earlier yeah, yeah. about what the main theme of the book is. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah, the, the question of, well, Heidi, do you want to respond to that? No, I, I, I think I agree with that. I think that's well said. So do you, when you're, when you're confronted with the sort of like decrepitude, decrepitude that we have in this, in this main character, do you just out of sympathy sort of say, well, that's just the way it is when you live in this sort of circumstance? Or do you, do you, how do you, how do you respond to these things about him that are, well, the evidence of that decrepitude, Heidi. Right. Yeah. I think I feel a lot of compassion for him because how else would he be? Like there's, I, there's no way for him. <laughs> there's no chest. Like he has no chest. He has, he has merely a belly and they've taken away his head as well. Like they're, they're just so system. There's such a systematic stripping of every part of what it of makes a human being uh, live a rich and meaningful life. And it's intentional. That's what Big Brother is doing intentionally, taking away any human connection, taking away the use of language, taking away personal responsibility and choice. Uh, anything that makes us happy or uh, fulfilled is, is stripped intentionally. So there's this giant vacuum. And... And in the absence of, of, of any nourishment, there's just a stunted soul. He has like a small stunted soul. And so does Julia. And so does everybody. And, and so I have a lot of compassion for that. Their resistance to the party at this point is personal for Julia and, and for Winston. It's because they're so unhappy, not because they believe in something bigger. They don't even know there's something bigger. They don't know there's anything bigger than that. And, and they're about, and they're losing the generation of people who do know that, which Winston instinctively understands what a loss that is and how without, without those the living memory of the past, uh, that, that all will be lost. Uh, and, and so there's this sense of ticking time, which is how the novel opens, right? Is the, is, um, is with the is clock with strikes 13. Yeah. Yep. 
Yep. So that is like the sense of ticking time of living memory dying and, and, and everything being erased by the party. That's what Winston is, you know, he, if he had had a moral, uh, you know, a robust moral training, I think he could have been a great soul. Right. And I think that's what we, to Tim's point that you brought up earlier, Tim, that's what I think we're supposed to see in Winston is this capacity for a rich inner life and for meaningful action in the world that's been so stunted that the only thing he can do is have casual sex with some girl and agree to throw sulfuric acid in a child's face. That's the tragedy of the novel is that this is the only resistance this person can come up with. Hmm. Tim, do you find yourself like as I you're reading? I feel compassion for that. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah, I, do I do not feel judgment for that. Um, yeah. I feel compassion on that. Yeah, me too. But do you find yourself, Tim, like, I think I sort of asked this earlier, like looking for glimpses of hope in him? Yeah. Yeah. And I think he has about as much hope as a person can muster given his circumstances, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, like almost a wild amount of hope considering his circumstances. I mean, one of the things that I so appreciate about this book, and I actually have a question that I want to ask both of you after this, is how much um, the environment is a character We've talked about this in some of the other books. Um, maybe Rebecca, you know, the manor in Rebecca is this almost living, breathing, speaking character. Yeah, it goes back to the to the houses bracket. Yeah, right. It goes yeah. back to the houses bracket. Um, I think Orwell is really good about sneaking in all of the kind of sour smells and like body odors and lack of taste and kind of like in bad taste, you know, like everything is a little bit or a lot dirty. Everything smells bad. Everything is old. Everything is threadbare. Anything that has color is off the market, you know? And so when we do find something, a kind of a glass globe with an opaque, you know, inner eye, it's just so remarkable to Winston that he, wants to hold it and look at it and imagines himself being in it, you know? So I think this is another like example of a really fine author creating a world that is so poignant and powerful that it almost is a stand-in for another character. And in some ways, it is Big Brother. Like, these are all the effects of Big Brother. We never speak to Big Brother, um, even the kind of you know, the, the broadcast messages or these kind of pre-recorded messages, there's no real personality behind them. It's just, this is the iron glove that is Big Brother. And here is the teleprompter's missive of the day. You know, there's no real character behind it. But I think that the the streets and the office buildings, they provide a real picture of what this society looks, smells, sounds like. Mm. So was, was that related to your question? No, my question is a little bit different. And we might need to wait until the last episode. Well, um, introduce the question and we can yeah, toss it out decide. there and then see if we need to discuss it. So my question is, had there not been a Soviet regime, had there not been uh, Khmer Rouge, had there not been these kind of like 
totalitarian regimes that we can look at in history and kind of like see the destruction that they wrought. And you could just read this book as unrelated to any sort of historical reality, but you just could read it as a dystopia, right? Would it be a good book? Mm-hmm. Heidi, what do you think? I, that's, a, that's a tough question because to your point that you made earlier, Tim, I don't think that this book can be understood without its historical context. Mm. So I think it was created for and out of its historical context. And, and so because of that, it's almost impossible to interpret it without it. Um, right. And so I guess I'd have to say no to your, as an answer to your question. But that makes it sound like I'm denigrating the necessity of books like this, which I, I am not. Like, I, I think that books like this are really, really important for culture. Um, in fact, right now, a little glimpse, I'm, I'm planning a moderns class next year, and I'm wrestling through whether or not to include this book in my 11th and 12th grade modern literature, or excuse me, modern humanities class, um, because it's one of those books that I think there's nothing like it to understand the 20th century. However, there's so much in it that is wicked. So, so I'm just really wrestling back and forth. Should this book be, should we read this book? Should, should 17 year old kids read this book in school? Because if I want yeah, them to understand that, and those are two the different tyranny, questions, I guess. right? Like if I want them to understand the tyranny of the 20th century, they should read this book. If I want to uh, nourish their souls on goodness, truth, and beauty, they should not read this book. And so that is... Or they should be prepared to read it. Right. Or maybe they need more preparing. But, but and also, Heidi... so, yeah. So anyway, I think no. I think the answer to your question is no. But I'm going to say that very, very, very conditionally. And I would be easily persuaded to the other side. We had this conversation when we read As L.A. Dying kind of about the contrast between uh, Wendell Berry and William Faulkner. They're kind of tasks as artists. And Wendell Berry kind of highlights the ideals, the way that we um, should remember this like certain window in the past and the sorts of people that inhabited that window of the past and extol their virtues. And then William Faulkner, by contrast, opens up the same kind of historical window and he looks inside and the characters that he finds inside are not people that we want to admire or emulate, but we can have sympathy for them. And I think of this book as George Orwell opening up a window in kind of like opening up a historical window and looking inside and we don't find characters that we esteem, but I do find characters that we have sympathy for. And I think in that way, his task is kind of, although he's like almost, as far as his prose goes, he's about as far away from William Faulkner as he can get, right? You know, he's so plain spoken. Faulkner is so poetic. But um, I don't know. I think both of those categories belong in our curriculums, both 
here are characters that are worthy of our esteem that we want to emulate. Here are characters that are worthy of our um, pity and our empathy, you know? Right. I, I yeah. agree with that. But I just, I, I think that this is a book that cannot be divorced from its historical context and ought to be used to illustrate its historical context. And so in that sense, I think, like David's question last week that he asked us about, is this an allegory? And we both said no. And as I was reading it this week, I'm like, it kind of is almost like a reverse allegory. Like we had the reality and then he wrote the book. That's a great and, way. to Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know that there's a name for that, but it's, it's a book that helps a allegory. Rally, right. It's a book that helps us understand a time period in history. And for that, it's very, very important. So if we didn't have that time period in history, I'm not sure this book would be would endure. Hmm. Yeah. And so I'm not sure it even succeeds as a novel as much as it succeeds as a uh, like kind of an allegorical window into the past. Yeah. Then and maybe the present or maybe the future. Maybe the present and the future as well. I don't know. But anyway, that's that's my thought. Yeah. Do I think it succeeds as a novel? Yeah. Kind of independent of its histo- of the historical no. touchstone. No, 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 no. You don't, I don't think so? No, I really think it succeeds as a novel with the historical context. <laughs> yeah. Go on. I, I mean, I, I think it. I think it's an a very interesting, well written book that is just it. It's just full of. Uh, I, th- I think the, what the, I'm, when I say that I don't I, the way I put that was was kind of strongly put. Um, That's okay. We're which might suggest that I think which, this is still right. America. <laughs> which which might suggest that I think the book is bad. I don't think the book is bad. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't think it. I think it has a lot of things that keep it from really truly succeeding as a narrative. So it depends on how you define novel. I think the narrative is pretty shallow, and 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 if you don't have that historical context, it, it, it doesn't really work that for me. So I think that what makes it meaningful is that you're pointing towards this thing that really happened, or I guess you could say that could really happen. And you, you're saying that this is like, these are the sort of archetypes that spring out of that. Cause to me, it's not like even the characters, I don't, I read them as like, like to me, they're archetypes of like like symbols symbols is what i'm trying to say it's every, everything in the book is a symbol and rather than a character or rather than a place like even the the location to me is really you were talking about that earlier i have a hard time with it because every i almost roll my eyes at it because it feels like he is saying like he just keeps dropping all these symbols on us so when you think about it within the context of like it's almost like a journal like he was a journalist right so like it's a there's this journalistic approach to telling this story and when you when you keep that journalistic uh, approach in mind like the reality that's behind the narrative the what feel to me like heavy-handed symbols are less unapproachable because they're symbols of something real. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> I'm saying this in a way that's like a little extreme to make my point. I'm not saying that it's a bad book. It's just like, for me, the narrative part of it outside of the historical context, outside of the things that it's pointing to outside of the, the sort of anxieties and fears that perpetuate the story and, 
outside of all those sorts of things, I, I think it, I would have a very difficult time with it is the way that I'll put it. Um, I'll make that, I'll make it personal rather than try to make some sort of universal statement. <laughs> yeah. If, if that's fair. Yeah. What do you think? I, I think I have a little bit more of a, um, I think I'm a little more tolerant of its artistic weaknesses. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I would not argue this is a piece of incredible literary, this is a literary bonanza, you know, it's going to blow your mind. Yeah. It, the book does blow my mind, but it, for the reasons that you guys pointed out, it's yeah, It can be meaningful aside history. from those, like yeah. being a quote, literary bonanza in terms of the traditional sense of what we think of as a literary novel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think- I think like it, what I'm saying there doesn't mean that the book is not necessary or good or important or have amazing things to right, say. It's just like right. reading it as a particular kind of story that I'm particularly affectionate, have a lot of affection for that I find to be a little limited. That, yeah. That's all I'm saying. Not that the book is, I mean, would you, do you see what I'm saying, Heidi? Like, would you agree with that at all? How do you feel about that? Oh yeah. I, I, I agree with you for sure on that. And I think that that's what Orwell was trying to do. Like he was, <laughs> he was trying to open our eyes to what was going on and to ask us what, what would, what to do about it. Right. What would you do about yeah. this? And, right. um, yeah. and <laughs> I know so many people who have started this book. I, I could probably, I could name, I'm thinking of like 12 people I know. Who can can you this. give the names? Can you just yeah. put them out there? <laughs> I will. Uh, no. But I like who have started this book <laughs> expecting to be this like hero's journey of resistance. Mm. And um, like Harry Potter, 1984. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and then get to the point we're at and are like, this book is terrible. It's morally bankrupt. It's empty. It's vacuous. It's right. And, and when, mm-hmm. And they're right. Um, or, or I'm bored. I don't know what's going on. None of these characters are likable. Um, there's, right? Like there's, and they start to identify the artistic problems, blah, blah, blah. And, and so, and they're, they're not wrong. Like that's, if you want a hero's journey of resistance, if you want like, you know, if you want like Aragorn, this is Go not for Hector. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is not your book. Um, and it doesn't get better, but it's saying something really important, but I'm not sure you can really get there without the historical context, unless you're just like, go to pure nihilism and say nothing matters, which I don't think is Orwell's point. Oh no, I don't either. Yeah. But to your question about the, about the artistic issues, like the, the craft issues, I mean, yeah, that seems true to me for sure i don't even know that i should fault orwell for that because i don't know that he's even necessarily trying to 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 do that like i don't he's not is he trying to write a novel like pride and prejudice or all the pretty horses or or even an Ernest Gaines book? you know like uh it, right. it, it, it in, in some ways it feels more like i'm reading frankenstein like like it's falling more in the footsteps of that. And now even that's going to like, that's a fraud. I should, can, you, I can you elaborate on that though, David, can you, for our listeners who are like, well, I really like it and I'm not sure I get what he's saying or I agree, but I can't put my finger on it. Like what, 
Can you can you give us an example of kind of where you feel like it fails in the craft? Uh, well, that's where when I was talking about the idea of like uh, everything kind of being a symbol of something else. That's kind of mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Like instead of I, I like I feel like what you know there's there's the, the characters are just sort of like Orwell says. Well, this would be the kind of thing that you have here so he creates mm-hmm. this like symbol of it the the place it doesn't it it's it just to me none of it feels entirely real and that might be that i need to keep reading it again because it's been so long since i read it so i need to get to the end and maybe i'll rethink that i it's hard for me to really totally explain what i'm feeling because it it, it is in a way kind of just like something it's an impression at this point. Cause I, cause like I said, it's been 12 years since I've read it or 15 years since I've read it. And so I need to get to the end. There's a lot of things that I'm like, Oh, I forgot that happened. <laughs> um, so I, so maybe you should ask me this again at the end of the book, but it's mm-hmm. that idea of like the, some of the characters and, and these, and the things that he keeps bringing up just feeling thin, feeling like symbols more than, more than, um, than characters yeah. um, or rather than lived places. And, I and like, that. I, that is, I understand that that's also like, a, 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 it is, it's an impressionistic sort of like personal thing. Other people probably don't feel that way. And that's, that's fine too. <laughs> so, but I don't know that that actually did what you asked me to do, Heidi. In fact, I'm quite no, I think that's helpful. Like we got to wrap this up too. Yeah. I think that that's helpful. Um, Tim, let's, we're going to have two more episodes to talk about this. We're kind of in the middle of a part yeah. here too. Yeah. So, talking about Julia and their relationship, we're going to be able to get more into that. And then also with O'Brien, uh, these things that kind of got started, we'll be able to look at these things a little closer. Um, like next week and beyond. Do you have any final thoughts as, as people are, are getting into the rest of the book? No, no, I don't have any more fun. I don't have any final thoughts. I think, yeah, this is kind of like a tricky part to like in the discussion because, we're right at kind of like a crisis moment that's going to affect the outcome of the book. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So I think I'll just refrain. Agreed. Same. Okay. Well then with that, we'll end here. Uh, don't forget you can uh, support the show over at our, at our Substack. get some great content. Heidi's first column is going up. Uh, well today, actually the day that this episode oh, goes up. So, great. uh, so people, we have access to that and then we've got the, the bracket and lots of great stuff coming. So, uh, close There's free content. And then also of course the subscriber type content. Um, and I guess that's it. We've got, obviously Tim, you're doing the place of things, uh, still, I think you guys just finished the fourth part two, right? You're under the Q and a, we are on or part the one. Q&A. I mean, sorry, sorry. We're all under the Q and a. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we got the daily poem and Willie Wendell's coming back here soon for the kids and bibliography, lots of great stuff going on. Uh, and Tim's planning a wedding. So just from <laughs> the top of that. Know, so pray for him. <laughs> Please do. Please do. One step at a time. Yeah, exactly. One foot in front exactly. of the other. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably the smart, the smart way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, although have you ever tried hopscotch wedding planning? You oh, might, you might try that. Something to think you about. might add some adventure to the uh, to the festivities uh-huh. um <laughs> uh well anyway with that for heidi white and for tim mcintosh i'm david kern thanks so much for listening and until next time happy reading mm-hmm.